The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today on the program, we'll speak with George Sanders, president of new sponsor, Goldcliff Resource Corporation, trading as GCFFF in the U.S. and GCN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Goldcliff is a mine development company focused on near-term cash flow, currently funding engineering and permitting activity on the Pine Grove, Nevada Gold Project through a 40% joint venture interest. James McDonald of Kootenay Silver, trading in the U.S. as KOOYF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as KTN, discusses their high grades of silver in Mexico. Ken Berry of Northern Vertex trading as NHVCF in the U.S. and NEE on the TSX Venture Exchange updates our audience with news about their project in northwestern Arizona. It's slated to go into commercial production next fall with gold and silver assets. I'll bring your attention to another new sponsor of the program, Cobalt Tech Mining, slated to be North America's first vertically integrated mine and producer of cobalt. Cobalt Tech trades in the U.S. as BNCIF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as C. CSK, Cruise Capital Corporation, BKTPF in the U.S., and CUZ on the TSX Venture Exchange adds additional acreage to its property in Ontario, which according to historic data has yielded 13% cobalt previously. Canalaska Uranium's Peter Dassler returns to the program for an overview of his recent travels to Saskatchewan. Canalaska trades in the U.S. as CVVUF and on the TSX as CVV. And I might have a thing or two to say about this and that and the other thing on this program. Let's begin. Join me for a recent conversation with Peter Dassler, President and CEO of Canalaska Uranium Limited, trading in the U.S. under the symbol CVVUF. Canalaska is an exploration company in Canada's Athabasca Basin, known for some of the highest grades of uranium in the world with 18 projects of their own. Canalaska shares a joint venture with the major uranium producer, Cameco. Additionally, the company has staked approximately 75 diamond targets in the Athabasca, bringing in De Beers, the world's largest diamond producer as a partner. You've been on the road in Saskatchewan. Every year the government of Saskatchewan puts on a uh, summary of all the activities that the government's been doing, that where the geologists have been, what new discoveries are on the province. And this year it was extremely well attended. Almost 800 people turned up to listen to the latest uh, information about the province. I understand there was quite a bit of attention directed toward Canalaska and the fact that you've identified diamond targets in the Athabasca. There was a lot of discussion. Uh, a lot of people came and visit us. This was a new thing that we announced this year. The government put their geophysical task force onto looking at these targets as well as us back in April and there was a presentation by the Saskatchewan government on what these kimberlite targets looked like in the western Athabasca. And there was also a, a very good presentation by the Geological Survey of Canada talking about the rocks that are in this area and how they're very old and very thick rock 
parts of the crust, and so there's excellent potential for the discovery of diamonds. They were all very supportive of us. Of course, we're working with De Beers, and we're getting into the nitty-gritty of these targets. I remember you had sent me an article reminding me of the great success story revolving around Stornoway Diamond, and how it changed the face of that junior mining company. The upside with regard to Canalaska is most likely very positive, and I would even venture to say unknown, isn't it? Well, it's always been very positive. We're working in the area that uh, we've been very familiar with for the last 14 years. We've been looking for uranium in this area with our partners from Japan and from Korea, Mitsubishi Corporation from Japan, and Korean Resources and Korean Electric for uh, Hanoi and SK from Korea. As the uh, uranium market slowed down after Fukushima, we directed our staff to look at other targets. It was fortuitous that the Canadian government had sponsored a new survey of the western part of the area where we generally work, and they flew some aircraft in the area looking for geological features that people could use for later on to compile the geological maps. And when we looked at that, we saw a whole lot of uh, strange features that looked to us like kimberlite pipes. These are basically small gas volcanoes that come from well over 100 miles under the earth and bring diamonds to the surface. After we did about a year of evaluation of these, we assembled some ground and started looking who could help us with this, and that's when we bought De Beers. And there's been a lot of activity since May on the ground. We're hoping the next steps here will get us drill programs on these early in the winter, but most likely it'll be March, April as the number of daylight hours get longer. You were telling me that the response not only from the Canadian government, but the investment community in general has been rather positive. There has been a large amount of money made in the resource sector over the past year. A lot of people have been investing in base metals. We've seen a couple of companies with discoveries in the uranium space soar in terms of valuations from, you know, the 10 to $20 million value to 5 to $600 million value because of uranium discoveries. Copper companies are doing the same. At a really strange time when the uranium price is at a low, we see tremendous demand, not even more than two or three years out for uranium because of the number of nuclear reactors being built across Asia, but also through the Middle East, through Europe, and even in the U.S., the uranium price has been low and has been frustrating in the financial markets. We saw a lift earlier this year. I hope to see another lift early in the new year. Cameco Corporation have been producing a large amount of uranium and they've said they're going to withdraw some of their uh, production by doing an extended shutdown next summer when everyone can take the holidays. And I think the market will pay a lot of attention to that. We may even see the hedge fund looking to run ahead of the end users on that. And that's what we saw previously. We saw the price of uranium go from $7 to $140. Pre-Fukushima, it was around about $70, and we're trading down to $18 and change at the moment. So there's some wild fluctuations in the uranium price. The demand is predicted to be very high out there, and I think we're going to see a bunch of companies working to get some further financial players into the uranium market, which will certainly bring price back up to a normal level. You see the market catching up with the demand. The predictions are extremely strong for uh, prices to go back in those 40 to $60 price range. I've been speaking with Peter Dazzler, President and CEO of Canalaska Uranium, trading of the U.S. as CVVUF. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. We asked it before you consider any possible investment choice. Do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me for a conversation now with James McDonald, President and CEO of Kootenay Silver. Kootenay Silver trades in the U.S. as K-O-O-Y-F and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol KTN. 
Kootenay Silver is a Canadian and Mexican-based silver exploration company actively engaged in the development of three major silver projects in Mexico, including the La Cigarra project in Chihuahua, Mexico, and the Promontorio and La Negra silver projects in Sonora, Mexico. The company has a leading growth profile highlighted by one of the largest silver asset bases in Mexico, and it carried interest to commercial production with a world-leading mining partner. Kootenay currently has two drill programs in progress in Mexico and a combined 43-101 silver asset base of over 140 million ounces of contained silver. Forward-looking statements may be included going forward. Today, we join Mr. McDonald on site at the La Cigar Silver Project. Jim, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Alice. Happy to be here. You're at the La Cigar Silver Project in Chihuahua State, Mexico, with some exciting news for us. Feel free to share it with us, Jim. Yeah, I am. I'm right on site. Came down, we put news out here on the first 11 drill holes on our ram structure on the La Cigarra deposit. It's the very first time that structure's ever been drilled. We can trace it for uh, 3,400 meters, 3.4 kilometers, and we've tested only 400 meters of that. What we're showing here is that we've hit good mineralization in 9 out of 11 holes. We've got consistent silver mineralization in multiple zones uh, along that entire 400 meters strike length. So that bodes really well for adding resources there. We 400 meters of strike, we're already building something up. When you look at the big picture and the trend we're on, we're on the extension of the mineral trend that comes right out of the operating Santa Barbara and San Francisco de Oro mines immediately to our south. That trend goes under the valley cover to the south of us, and when it emerges on the other side of the valley, it comes right up into our ram and soledad structures and on into our deposit area. So we're working on the same mineral trend, same kind of structure, and they're mining down a 1,000 meter depth there. So this kind of start here, we're wide open on the ram structure along strike, hit silver mineralization consistently along 400 meters right out of the gate is very promising start and you know gives us a lot of confidence we're going to be adding ounces here and you know we've got potential for some real good high grade ounces ore shoots forming along this trend we are potentially talking about ounces per ton though i'm looking at some of these drill highlights from the ram zone and they're very very strong you know we've got some great grades there at the start Right out of the gate, we're getting up to 200 grams per ton. You're talking in that sort of case, six ounce, seven ounce per ton range when you talk about ounces. Yeah, it's just the beginning. We're coming back. We're still currently drilling. We're moved over to a structure to the east. Uh, in the new year, we're going to come back to the ram structure. We're, and we're going to step out in a wide space drill setups and just have a look at that whole trend and then come back and close in on the results we get from that. So the new year is going to be a lot of follow-up work. I think it's going to be very exciting for us. And not only that target, but the additional targets that remain to be drilled in the immediate area of the deposit itself. And then we're going to get onto the deposit in the new year and finish drilling it off, which has not been done yet. Nothing is certain, of course, but the future looks really bright with regard to the La Cigar Silver Project. The future looks um, <laughs> it looks really good. What we're dealing with here is a district-scale project. We're in an established district already. The Prell District, broader scope of the district, there's been some 2 billion ounces of silver discovered or produced. There's two producing mines in the district still, and those are the two mines that sit immediately to our south, south of our project. So we're basically extension of that system, and we've got multiple 
target areas on the property that haven't even been drilled yet. The deposit itself already has 52.5 million ounces of measured indicated silver and another 11.5 million ounces in the inferred category. It's open in both strike directions. It's open to depth. And then in the immediate surrounding area, there are eight undrilled targets. And we're just starting to have a look at those. And that's what these RAM results are all about. And for a first pass right out of the gate, that's very, very encouraging numbers that we're getting. And we're just scratching the surface here. Well, Jim, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. We applaud all the good work that you're doing. And I'm sure that your shareholders may be very pleased as well. I've been speaking with James McDonald, the president and CEO of Kootenay Silver, trading as K-O-O-Y-F in the U.S. and K-T-N on the TSX Venture Exchange. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Ken Barry, the president and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining. Trading in the U.S. as NHVCF, Northern Vertex Mining is actively engaged in the development of its flagship Moss Mine Gold Silver Project in the historic Oatman Mining District in Northwest Arizona. Over the past six years, the company has worked diligently to establish a substantial gold-silver resource and is now focused on advancing the project to commercial mine construction and future gold-silver production. Ken, welcome to the program. If you don't mind, give listeners an overview of the company, and let's also talk today about Northern Vertex's recent news. Northern Vertex is in the process of developing the Moss Mine. We're looking to put the Moss Mine from startup right into production over the next seven months. We've mobilized equipment to the mine site. We'll start construction on the road systems and the heap leach pad. This really follows up on a test mining facility that we conducted over a period of about a year and a half that produced 4,000 ounces of gold and 20,000 ounces of silver. And we're now taking the project into commercial production. We're looking to have an annual production of about 42,000 ounces per year. This is something that's going to be very profitable. We're looking at an internal rate of return of close to 50% and a payback of just over two years. You just completed an oversubscribed private placement. You also selected BDW International to drill a 3,000 meter program. We've just closed a 1.3 million financing to conduct some exploration, which will demonstrate that we have additional ounces on site and that this project can grow beyond that 42,000 ounce production profile. But in parallel to that, we've also recently closed 7.3 million financing in a convertible debenture and also a $20 million financing with Sprott Lending. The financing is in place to commence construction and really get this project underway here in the next couple of weeks. These are pretty sizable partners. Now, Sprott's very aggressive within the resource sector. Sprott has been very supportive of mining projects, and they're really a leader in the field. We previously had Macquarie Bank as our sort of lender in terms of uh, receiving a credit-approved term sheet. And then shortly after, we had Sprott Lending come to us, and they recognized the profitability of this project and were successful 
successful at winning our business and we signed that $20 million U.S. facility with them just in the last month and that's given us the ability now to start construction. No matter what the market does, you have a market for the gold you're going to be producing. As we saw with the test mining where we produced the 4,000 ounces of gold and 20,000 ounces of silver, there's always a market for precious metals. My belief is we've seen a little bit of a pullback in precious metals here in the last month or two. That's just a buying opportunity really. When you look at the overall markets over since about 2011 to late in 2015, the precious metals markets pulled back over 85% in terms of equities in the marketplace for junior and development stage companies. So this is really a buying opportunity in our eyes to look at the precious metals sector. As you pointed out, there's always a market for gold and silver. What do you estimate your production costs to be? We're looking at a cash cost of just over $415 per ounce. Our all-in costs will be approximately $668 per ounce. That's in the lower quartile for producing mining company. We're seeing gold trade just under $1,200 an ounce now. If gold were to pull back in that $1,000 range or lower, projects like ours will still be in production while others are shutting down. So in terms of competitive advantage, that lower all-in cost is a real important figure. Doing business in Arizona, which is a great jurisdiction in addition to the built-in infrastructure, must be contributing to those low production costs. Well, as you pointed out, location is very important in a lot of different businesses, but in mining particularly, this is a cost savings for Northern Veritex and our capital expenditures. We're looking at capital expenditures of about $33 million. Our location is one and a half hours south of Las Vegas and about three hours west of Phoenix. In terms of cost savings, we don't have to build a mining camp, which many remote projects would have to build a mining camp, and they can be anywhere from eight to $12 million to put a camp together for a mining operation. We don't have to carry a, a lot of inventory to support our operations. We've got easy access to the International Airport at Las Vegas, Phoenix just to the east, and we also have an international airport in the town of Bullhead City, which is only about a 20-minute drive from our mine site. That cost savings on having our employees work close to their homes and live with their families and just the overall happiness of our employees is a huge benefit. I've been speaking with Ken Berry, President and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining, trading in the U.S. as NHVCF. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website. EllisMartinReport.com. I'm Ellis Martin for Cruise Capital Corp. Trading as BKTPF. Consider this, if you will. The dynamic for cobalt is very similar to what you've seen in lithium. The price for lithium has gone from $6,000 to a high of close to $25,000 in the last year and a half. That would be the equivalent of gold actually being at $6,000 in the next year. Cruise Capital saw an opportunity in cobalt six months ago, being one of the first companies in Nevada the day that Pure Energy announced its deal with Tesla, Cruz actually announced its own lithium deal. They were one of the first movers there, and four months later, Lithium X came along. When you become a lithium company, you look at the dynamics of why lithium prices are moving the way they have. Primarily, it's been the electric car industry that has been the driver for that exponential gain in lithium. What the management of Cruz did then was look at what were the main drivers within the battery space within those cars. You had graphite, which has already had more or less 
a bigger pop, with many companies looking for graphite and not many finding it. Nickel is a much bigger industry, and the company couldn't really get in at the early stages. And then cobalt. Looking at the cobalt dynamic, really there's only two or three companies in North America that are cobalt-specific companies of which they've spent a great deal of money on those projects and for the most part are still not at a point where they can really be economic. The cobalt numbers need to be higher to make those companies and the dynamics work correctly. When they were doing this, cobalt was $10. They need about $20 to be in a good comfort level to go into production. Cruz was looking at the dynamics of cobalt itself and there's a niche there. There were few within the sector. What Cruz did was hire a geological firm as they only wanted to find North American cobalt projects. They came back a month later with numerous cobalt showings. They garnered a database of close to 200 different cobalt projects of which they graded from one to four. They came back with a small amount of number one categories and instead of getting one project they captured eight projects for the company right out of the gate. By having eight projects all with the same highest grade cobalt numbers in North America it puts Cruz at a distinct advantage to all other cobalt companies that we expect will follow them as they did in lithium in Nevada in the future. Cruz is pleased to announce that it has increased its property holdings or acreage on the Colbin Cobalt Project that returned 13% cobalt in Ontario, Canada. This now comprises approximately 900 contiguous acres. The Coleman Cobalt Prospect is one of four cobalt prospects in Ontario currently held by Cruz to go along with three in British Columbia and one in Idaho. The Coleman Cobalt Prospect is located in the Larder Lake Mining Division of Ontario. According to a province of Ontario mineral file, the property returned grades of up to 13% cobalt and appeared to be an extension of the Trethaway vein. The company looks forward to commencing operations on this prospect to evaluate and follow up on the historic data gathered. The company stated that they continue to expand their cobalt assets at a time when cobalt prices continue to move to year highs. Cruz has been able to acquire what they feel is one of the best collections of cobalt prospects in North America. Cruz's four separate Ontario cobalt prospects, according again to government mineral files, returned cobalt grades of 13% on the 900-acre Coleman Cobalt Prospect and 10.5% on the 900-acre Johnson Cobalt Prospect. The 5,500-acre Hector Cobalt Prospect was a past-producing cobalt mine, and the 1,480-acre Buck Cobalt Prospect returned cobalt grades of 13%. Cruz's War Eagle Cobalt Prospect in British Columbia covers a past-producing mine as well and returned assays of 6.5% cobalt. Based on these projects, management feels that Cruz has amassed a quality portfolio of cobalt assets that have some of the highest historic cobalt grades in North America, which sets Cruz apart from most cobalt companies in the junior space. They believe that 2017 will be a breakout year for cobalt prices, and they are well positioned to take full advantage of this. Cruz Capital Corp. plans to commence full operations on all these projects with their goal to make Cruz the go-to North American cobalt project generator and developer. And management is optimistic about what will be discovered by Cruz on their cobalt properties. Cruz Capital Corp. is actively engaged in acquiring and developing high-grade cobalt projects and politically stable, environmentally responsible, and ethical mining jurisdictions. Cruz has already acquired several high-grade cobalt projects across North America. America. Seven cobalt projects are located in Canada and one 
in Idaho. Management of the company feels that cobalt is at the early stages of a significant bull market. Cruise Capital trades in the U.S. as BKTPF. That's BKTPF. Cruise Capital Corp. is a paid sponsor of the Yellow Smart Report. I'm Ellis Martin for Cobalt Tech Mining Incorporated. Trading as BNCIF in the U.S. and CSK on the TSX Venture Exchange. Cobalt Tech is very unique in that it has agreed to acquire all of the assets and technology to become North America's first vertically integrated cobalt processing company with the capacity to take mineralized ore to produce high-tech metals. It is the company's goal to continue exploration, mine its assets, bring them into production and to market an all-inclusive operation, crushing, milling, refining, smelting, and marketing all in one. The company basically having its own infrastructure. What is the importance of cobalt? Why is its use crucial as we continue to move forward in a technologically advanced industrial society? Cobalt is an essential component for cathodes and NCA and NMC type batteries or lithium ion batteries. You can't really make these cobalt cathodes without it. Cobalt Tech President and CEO Antoine Faunier explains. Cobalt actually enters into the cathodes. In the battery you have cathodes and, uh, and anodes and the current uh, travels from one to the other. And uh, the cobalt actually is used to making the cathodes. So it's a very essential component of uh, lithium batteries. A supply versus demand crunch is imminent, with 61% of mined cobalt retrieved from the politically unstable Democratic Republic of Congo, where, according to the Washington Post, children are actually using their hands to dig it out of the ground. Much of that same cobalt is headed to China, where that country refines 43% of the world's cobalt. The cobalt is then used in the millions and millions of phones, computers, and other electronic devices that the country produces for much of the globe, in alliance with companies such as Apple and Samsung, believe it or not. That will become potentially increasingly problematic should the U.S. enter a trade war with China, a country which is already attempting to control the world's mineral resources. Tesla is looking to source new raw materials strictly from North America. Other car makers will follow suit, especially as manufacturers are encouraged to keep production within the United States as per the consensus of the new incoming administration. Much of what we consume may be in fact produced in either the U.S. or Canada. Cobalt is also widely used in magnets and wear-resistant high-strength alloys. It has long been used as a pigment for glass, ceramics, inks, and paints. The town of Cobalt, Ontario, Canada is home to Cobalt Tech's Duncan Kerr project, with an estimated 1.3 million tons of mineralized stockpiles also housing a 100-ton-per-day mill. The mill is fully permitted. And did I not mention that the town is named Cobalt? Needless to say, Ontario is one of the most mining-friendly jurisdictions in the world. I asked Mr. Founier what he believed the stockpiles on site consisted of. We have one concentrated pile, and this pile is running very high-grade uh, silver and cobalt. It's running 760 grams per ton silver and 0.95% cobalt, whereas the, the waste piles and the, the stockpiles that we've seen on surface so far, we're getting between 5 and 10 ounces to the ton silver, and uh, 
probably around uh, half a percent of cobalt. So that's about 11 pounds of cobalt to the ton. Cobalt Ontario is a unique area in the world because the cobalt is tied to silver, which is abundant in the area. It's a very unique geological environment, and it makes it much more easy to actually estimate a resource on this kind of material and bring it into production because it's not as complicated as bringing a massive sulfide deposit in production. You need a lot less tons, and you can process the material directly. So it's a very economical process. Cobalt Ontario is home to the first mineral discovery in northeastern Ontario that would open the way for the prolific Timmins and Kirkland Lake mining camps. Historically, 484.6 million ounces of silver have been produced in Cobalt, Ontario. Global expansion in production of the lithium-ion battery makes the acquisition of the Duncan Kerr project a significant value-add for Cobaltec mining. The company has approximately 57 million shares outstanding and trades near 19 cents today. It may be a very nice investment opportunity in the cobalt space. That's not for me to say. That's your decision. Invest at your own risk. For more information on Cobaltec mining, visit our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Cobaltech Mining trades as BNCIF in the U.S. and CSK on the TSX Venture Exchange and is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Stay with the Opportunity Radio Network for continued reporting on this expanding and growing resource story in the cobalt space. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with George Sanders, president of Gold Cliff Resource Corporation, trading as GCFFF in the U.S. and GCN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Gold Cliff is a mine development company focused on near-term cash flow by applying the phased production business model to precious metals assets. The company is currently funding engineering and permitting activity on the Pine Grove, Nevada Gold Project through a 40% joint venture interest. Mr. Sanders was part of the team that successfully brought the Silvercrest Mine Santa Elena project to fruition as a mine, selling it off to First Majestic Silver. George, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Why don't you give our listeners an overview of the company, if you don't mind? Sure. Goldcliff Resource Corporation has been around for a very long time. Incorporated, I think, in the mid-90s, well before my involvement with the company. It has always been, until very recently, an exploration-focused business as a result of a five-year-long bear market in precious metals prices, but particularly in precious and junior precious metals equities. We decided a little over a year ago to refocus the company's activities. So we have pivoted from being what amounted to a broken, broken down exploration company into a restructured and refocused mine development company. We are focused on a particular niche in the market of mine development, and that is on modest size deposits of particular grade and particular location that will allow us to utilize a particular business model to achieve cash flow in a fairly reasonable or near-term fashion. These particular grades that you're referring to at the Pine Grove Project, according to what I'm looking at, are quite high. What I'm seeing are ounces per ton as opposed to grams per ton. Let's talk about that as well as your strategy to take money from the ground as opposed to putting too much into the ground. First of all, Pine Grove is located in Nevada in the United States. As your listeners will know, in that part of the world, things are still done in feet rather than meters. 
and grades are reported in ounces per ton rather than grams per ton. In any technical reporting, including what's been done at Pine Grove, both standards are reported. Ounces per ton are a little easier for people in the U.S. to understand. Most of the rest of the world uses grams per metric ton. We are implementing something that others have called the phase production model. Whenever a management team evaluates a project, they want to see something that has a already developed resource or a resource that could be developed quickly for a modest amount of money and then from there engineered and turned into production quickly. That's a little bit different from what most of the business does and what most of the business does has more of an exploration bent to it and that is endless series of additional drill programs to build bigger and bigger resources. Now eventually you're going to exhaust the amount of metal or mineral contained on your land position but that's been the style is to establish a maiden resource and to expand it and then to expand it a third, a fourth, a fifth time. Our view is to find something that's already in place or that can be put in place and then take that to production and expand out of cash flow. So that's the business model. I was part of the Silvercrest Mines team that successfully implemented that model in Mexico and created a lot of wealth for shareholders and stakeholders. I know that it's a business model that works and that can work very well. There are a couple of key things to that model, Ellis, and you hit on the number one key or the initial key, which is grade. If you are going to develop a smaller or a modest size mineral deposit into production quickly, you need to have a little bit better than average grade. In Nevada right now, most of the projects under development are grades of below one gram per ton. One gram per ton is 0.029 and change ounces per ton. As I say, most of the deposits under development right now are in the sort of 0.6 to 0.8 grams per ton. At Pine Grove, we're just a tad under 1.4 grams per ton or 0.04 ounces per ton. So it's a little bit better grade than the average deposit being developed. That's the open pit component, and the open pit component sits on top of historic high-grade production where the gold grades were multiple ounces. I believe the average gold grade in the Pine Grove District, which was mined between 1860 and 1890, was 1.2 ounces per ton gold. I'm seeing an indication here at 5 feet of 12.9 ounces of gold per ton. That is spectacular. I'm sure it's not an indication of all of your assets, but it is interesting, and it bears discussion, George. Well, that's exactly right, and it's all well and good to be looking at the lower-grade halo or the lower-grade zones that have bled off of historic high-grade production throughout the southwest United States and on into northern Mexico. And the whole advent beginning in the middle and late 1970s of open pit mining heap leach extraction in the southwest United States. Almost all of those initial deposits through the late 70s and on in through the 80s were in districts in Nevada and other parts of the southwest U.S. where there had been historic high grades. So that's what took the old timers to those places in the first place. And then the second wave here 35, 40 years ago took us to these districts was that historic production. And the open 
open pits that were mined from those where the, we'll call them halo zones. That's not really a, a geologic term, but I think your listeners can understand that. At Pine Grove, that high grade was, as we say, spectacular high grade. It was over one ounce per ton recovered grades, but it's not all disappeared. It hasn't all been mined out. And so the significance of that particular uh, drill hole, which I believe was Lincoln Mining, who are our partner on the project, drilled that hole in 2010. What's important about that is that it shows that some of the high grade is still in place. The previous operators at Pine Grove were clearly after surface mineable bulk tonnage. Led there by the historic grade, recognized the halo or bulk mineable type grades in the two deposits on the two hills. The emphasis was on developing those into a resource, and rightly so. Since Goldcliff has become involved in the project, which is very recent, we've been very interested in finding whatever data we could about the historic high grade. And very recently, the last couple of weeks, we've uncovered some information that leads us to believe that there's very much a possibility to develop a small mineable component of high grade. This is just an idea at this stage. We haven't tested it. We haven't designed a program, but we do recognize from the geology and from some of the more recent drilling that the high grade wasn't all mined. It certainly wasn't mined at any depth. The nature of the gold occurrence is such that it could continue to depth. That remains as a very viable target. Whether it's something you would utilize initially as you're building your open pit mine or whether you would go underground after the open pit has been exhausted, none of that we know yet. But what we do know is that that drilling and some other surface sampling is indicative that the high-grade component at Pine Grove is still very much in place. What's the structure look like underground? Is it easy to get in there and do some testing? It isn't. There are over 10 miles of tunnels on the Wilson patented claims, which is the only part of the high grade that we've looked at to date. All of those adits, except one, are partially caved. The Lincoln team, since they've been on the project since 2007, have not spent any time focusing on the underground. While the openings were caved, I'm of the belief that some of them have the possibility of being opened up. The one that's opened, our people have been in just under 300 feet to the first stoped area, and they have taken a couple samples from in there. One of the things that we will consider early in the new year is to bring a small mines underground contractor to the site and just have a couple of their people take a look inside of some of these openings, maybe get in as far as they can, and give us an estimate, you know, is the ground in really bad condition once you get inside or is it in okay condition or just what the status of it is because we don't have that information yet. That kind of arrangement with someone like that would not cost us very much. And then we'll know exactly, can we get in completely? Can we get in only a little ways? Do we need to maybe drive some new underground infrastructure, which was not in our plan or budget? But interestingly, the workings and some of the highest grade stopes, according to the old maps, are in from the side of the hill or from the portal. They're in less than 800 feet. 
that's not very expensive. The issue with the structures here is that they are gently dipping and they are dipping into a rising hill. So to intercept the continuity of mine stopes on a down dip basis, you're getting further and further away as the hill climbs up the zone dips down and so every time you want to move out to project that mineral as it's gently dipping into the earth those are longer and longer drill holes and you get to a point where it would be easier to either drill those structures from underground or open new underground infrastructure to test them. We're not ready to make that decision, but as I say, early in the new year, we'd like to get some underground people in there to take a look at it, and we'll be able to make those decisions a little quicker. Because it is an exciting component. The really important thing for listeners is that when you're dealing with plus one ounces, even if you only find a very, very small mineable zone underground, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 tons. Those are also 10 or 20 or 30,000 ounces. And if you're talking about a resource under 150,000 contained ounces, which is what we're looking at currently, that's a significant portion. Because of their grade, those become fairly inexpensive ounces to extract, even if the unit cost on them is high. What's the quickest or likeliest road that you'll take to head into production? Generating revenue for the company, and according to what I've seen, royalty for the share holders and money to expand the resource much like the Silvercrest model when Santa Elena was sold off to First Majestic. This project has had 89,000 feet of drilling on it approximately and we're just completing an additional 6,800 feet of drilling. So it's been well drilled. It's drilled according to again standard Nevada methodology which is on 100 foot centers so 30 meter centers not 100 meter centers which means the current resource is mostly in a measured rather than indicated category. So the mineral continuity and the grade, the level of confidence in those things is very high. There's not a lot of infill drilling required. So the path to production is mostly on the permitting side. A little bit of fine-tuning of the flow sheet, which is another way of saying some of the detailed metallurgical work and some of the engineering. So we'll look to commence a pre-feasibility study in the second half of the year. We have restarted the permitting process, and I like to explain the permitting to people simply by saying that that is a multi-stage process, some of which you have control over and some of which you don't as a project sponsor. So obviously, the first thing that needs to be done, and this is where the project sponsor has a lot of control, is you need the data gathering process. Some of that data requires just the passage of time. You have to monitor weather patterns. You have to monitor some other things like that. And that activity takes, can't do it in a week. It takes six months or it takes eight months or whatever. A bunch of that has already been done and we're continuing that. And then once that data 
is collected. The second thing that part of the process is the sponsor has to put it into their plan of operations or the other documents that the regulators require. So there's a data collection, there's a data compilation and reporting, and then it's turned over to the regulatory bodies, and that's the third part of the permitting system, and that's the part that's out of the control of the project sponsor. And as we all know, Nevada is either number one or number two mining jurisdiction in the world. And while the permitting requirements are stringent, they are also reasonable and the bureaucracy is practical. So we don't expect any issues with permitting, but it is sort of 18 to 20 month process and we have reinitiated that. And then we will look to do in the second half of the year a pre-feasibility study. Now, this is on, Ellis, the existing resource. And this is very much the model that we used at Santa Elena. We built the open pit heap leach and with an anticipated fairly short mine life, recognizing that the zone that was going to be open pitted would continue at depth and perhaps become better grade. So as we developed the mine, we had some small programs to sort of indicate that that was possible. And then once the mine was cash flowing, we drilled fairly aggressively at depth to establish the continuity and the new resource at depth. And when the open pit was mined out four years later, in that operation at Santa Elena, we transitioned from 2,000 ton a day open pit heap leach into 3,000 ton a day underground mining. And I believe First Majestic is still mining from underground and blending with the spent heap leach pad. So that was the original plan at Santa Elena, which was executed very successfully and resulted in the first majestic buyout. So at Pine Grove, we have this modest resource. We see the focus of advancing it into production, but there are an awful lot of untested targets, very sexy geology, areas where there are old diggings and some old adits that haven't even even been drilled. So we see applying the same method as taking the initial resource, driving it forward, but in the meantime, some modest expenditure of checking out these other possibilities. And then once we get into production successfully, to really focus in on being there for a lot longer. The current resource is, again, similar to Santa Elena. It gives about a four-year mine life, but we think there's possibilities to extend and expand that significantly, including in the high-grade area that we just spoke about. What's the company's strategy one to five years out? Do you see yourself becoming a mid-tier producer, hypothetically, or is there a takeout strategy? You don't get someplace unless you have an idea of where it is that you want to go. So where we would like to go is we'd like to build our optionality. We'd like to build this as a successful cash flow generating precious metals operating company that might be valuable to an intermediate the way Silvercrest was to First Majestic. But in the absence of that, be something that stands alone and makes money for its shareholders. And we'd like to do that on multiple fronts. We are actually looking at other Southwest U.S., Northern Mexico assets of similar size and nature to Pine Grove. We're looking at one right now that could be in production sooner than Pine Grove. 
So we see duplicating this strategy and actually building a critical production growth and financial profile to get to that point. That's where we'd like to go, say, three, four years out. How are you cashed up as far as bringing a potential mine into production? And what's the share structure look like? I'll start with the second part because it leads nicely into the first part of the question. I did mention that earlier in the year, April, May, we completed a pivot or a transition from a broken down exploration focused company to a restructured, refinanced mine development focused company. So we were February, March, April of this year, we were just under 100 million shares issued. Our quote in the marketplace was no bid offered at a half a penny. We had $40,000 in the bank and we had accounts payable of about $800,000. Since that time, we have restructured the company and the balance sheet. So we now have just under 19 million shares issued. Uh, we raised one and a quarter million Canadian dollars at 19 cents on a post-rollback basis. We're just about to complete a drill program, so we're not fully financed to earn our Pine Grove interest or to put the mine in production. But having said that, we have cleaned up the balance sheet. Part of the 18.97 million currently outstanding include two and a half million on a shares for debt. So some of our creditors wrote down a chunk of the debt that they were owed and then that remaining part of that debt was settled by the issuance of shares, again at 19 cents. And I will tell you that all of those creditors were members of the board of directors, so those were old outstanding invoices for prior geological, geophysical, and geochemical consulting. Our board is heavily comprised of exploration geologic people, so we do all of our own internal work. And I explain that to say that those shares did not go to unpaid creditors who are simply waiting to monetize those shares. Those shares went to company insiders who are committed to building the company and building the value for the shareholders. I was included personally as a small part of that, and I am the largest individual shareholder. Myself, the other members of the board, family member, and a friend or two, we control just under 50% of the current 19 million shares issued. So we think we have a very solid new foundation, new balance sheet. We do not have all the money we need to take this to production. We don't have a final capital cost estimate, but based on my own experience at Santa Elena, one of the key players is Paul Saxton. Paul's a longtime member of our board. He's a mining engineer. He's also the CEO of Lincoln Mining, who is our partner on the project. And very importantly, Paul has put into production in his career four of these small or mid-size open pit mines, and he's done all of them in a junior company platform, not as part of a major, but you know, as part of operating it on a limited budget. So we think, based on our past experience, that the capital on this project will be somewhere under $25 million. We need to have that documented, obviously, in a pre-feasibility study, but our experience tells us it'll be somewhere in that range. We think that that amount is financed for a junior player. 
Give us a snapshot of your background, if you don't mind. I call myself a resource entrepreneur. I am not a uh, geoscientist. However, I was raised in the business. My father was a well-known geologic engineer, was a well-known exploration guy in Western Canada. Lived in a number of different mining communities as a youngster, where my father was usually employed as the mine geologist or the exploration manager. After graduating university, was at a loose end as to what to do next. I actually went to work with my dad who was developing a project in Western Canada. Got into the business that way. My main focus in those early years and my strengths was in logistics. So camp management, building camps, transporting camps and crews and contractors to remote project setting and managing all of that. I didn't have an academic background in that kind of thing, but was able to do it successfully. And that led me a number of years later into the finance side of the business. And I did that for 15 years and have been working on my own account for a number of years. And as I've alluded to earlier in the conversation, the last four or five years was as a board of director member of Silvercrest Mines. George, thanks for joining me today on the program. I look forward to more conversations in the future. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for your questions. I've been speaking with George Sanders, president of Gold Cliff Resource Corporation, trading as GCFFF in the U.S. and GCN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, and go to goldcliff.com for more information on the company. I'm Ellis Martin. I am often asked about my opinion regarding the resource sector, precious metals, base metals, flavors, trends, and potential investment opportunities. The purpose of this particular program is to allow you, the retail audience of investors, to be exposed to a plethora of public companies seeking to enhance their shareholder base as part of their fiduciary duty to their current cadre of investors. You can't be the best alchemist there is turning dirt into gold without the public being aware of that potential capability. It's the old analogy paraphrased here. If a tree falls in the woods and no one is there to hear it, did it actually fall? I'm sure I've chopped up this parable, but my point is I am typically hired as a paid journalist, if you will, to interview and purvey the compelling stories of publicly traded companies wanting to place their own story in front of you for your consideration. This does not make me an expert on the subject matter we speak of on this program. On the other hand, I do not consider myself more or less informed or less prophetic than any of the so-called experts floating around the investment media space. They know as much or as little or less than I do about any market trend. I predicted the fall of gold from $1,800 per ounce to near $1,000 per ounce not too long ago. I actually said it would fall to $900 a few years ago, but I think $100 per ounce is negligible. Prior to that, I predicted its rise to nearly $2,000 per ounce. It came fairly close to that. All of this was just based on intuition, which I believe is predicated on what any of us know about any particular subject. The more we obsess, the more passion we have about anything, the more we can make a call on it, albeit that call can be wrong. I spend a great deal of time in my work, which I happen to really like. If you do that, you're going to get a feel for the trends of your own work. I predicted to friends or strangers that would ask me that after the election, no matter who won, we'd see base metals, clean tech minerals, uranium, copper, lithium, 
lithium, cobalt, zinc, silver even, head north, spiral carefully and not parabolically up, based on the fact that whether it would have been Mrs. Clinton or Mr. Trump in office, infrastructure spending would be high on the to-do list for the winning administration. We are seeing increases in prices and attention in many of these metals. All of that pre-election retreat or natural suppression, the jack-in-the-box syndrome, I call it, and we can track it back four years even, has to end. And I believe that it has. As the stock market in general rises, so will metal prices. What about gold itself? A speculative metal. Gold has been so suppressed in general and so sensitive to news, real or contrived, that it certainly can turn upward again on a number of sensitive issues. Never-ending geopolitical concerns globally, linking gold to the dollar, which can happen again, potential runaway inflation, or just people like me and several others saying, you know, you should buy gold. I'm not saying that, but I could. We all could. Just the message that you should buy gold being purveyed suggests that the lemmings could follow. In short, we may see the largest boom in base and precious metals that we've ever seen. Just because, why not? Eventually, you'll all get bored and fed up with spending your money on new things that will just devalue, like whatever smartphone you're carrying. And by the way, those metals have to come from somewhere. Think about it. I'm Ellis Martin, and it's only my opinion. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.